Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Now, if you recall, the last episode was about what happened on the morning of Sunday, the 25th of April, 1920, when the body of Sidney George Spicer was found in a hedgerow on a quiet country road near Thruxton Down, Andover. He had been shot in the head, and it was established that Spicer was a taxi driver from nearby Salisbury. A man in an army uniform was seen asking Spicer for a lift, and it was established that that man was Private Percy Topless, who was later discovered that Topless, along with another private, Henry Fellows, took the stolen taxi all the way to Wales. The taxi was found abandoned in Swansea the following day, and at the same time, a soldier, Private Harry Fellows from Bolford Army Camp, came forward to say that he had been at the camp late on Saturday night when a colleague, Percy Francis Topless, arrived in the car, which he now realised was the stolen taxi. He admitted driving to Swansea with Topless, and then they parted company, and Topless disappeared. In this episode, we continue that story, and you'll find out more about Private Percy Topless. Before we go any further, though, let's go through some more events that happened in the year 1920. From January to November... Experimental radio broadcasts, including speech and music, were made from a studio at the Marconi Company factory in Chelmsford, Essex. From the 5th to the 30th of April, there was the 1920 Blind March, a protest march of 250 blind men from across Britain to London. It was organised by the National League of the Blind, or NLB, to protest poor working conditions and poverty experienced by blind people. In particular, the NLB raised concerns over the conditions in workshops run to provide employment to the visually impaired by various charities. The marchers assembled at Newport, Manchester and Leeds on the 5th of April and marched to London, assembling at Trafalgar Square on the 25th of April. They were greeted by a crowd of 10,000 thousand who listened to speeches from Herbert Morrison and trade union leaders. 
on the 7th of October, the first 100 women are admitted to study for full degrees at the University of Oxford. And on the 15th of December, Vaughan Williams' The Lark Ascending is premiered in its original version for violin and piano, with Marie Hall as violinist at Shirehampton, near Bristol. Word of the Week This week's empowering word is... Floorsome, which is a combination of the words floors and awesome. It means that you are awesome and wonderful, even if you do have floors. So celebrate your floors and be proud of them, because nobody is perfect. This word was originally coined by model Tyra Banks. Born in Chesterfield, Derbyshire, in September 1896, Percy Francis Toplis's parents, Herbert and Rejoice, couldn't look after him, so he went to live with his grandparents. In March 1908, aged 11, he was birched for acquiring two suits using false pretenses. At one point, when Toplis failed to appear when summoned six months later, his grandfather said, "'His grandmother cannot do with him any longer,' as he is out of control. And so the court released him to his aunt, Annie Webster, in Colliery Road, Blackwell. Topless left school in 1910, aged 13, and became a blacksmith's apprentice at the Blackwell Colliery. But after a poor attendance record and an argument with the pit manager, because he'd been found drinking at the Blackwell Arms pub when he was supposed to be on the night shift, he was fired. He then started an itinerant life of petty crime in Scotland. In 1911, he was sentenced to 10 days imprisonment in Dumfries for the non-payment of two train tickets. In 1912, he pleaded guilty to assaulting 15-year-old Nellie North, intending to rape her, in Sutton-on-Sea on the 21st of February 1912. He was sentenced to two years hard labour. He was 15 and a half years old. A warder from the prison he was in was interviewed years later. He said that he tried to give Topless some advice about going straight so that he wouldn't be imprisoned again. Topless had replied, If I do come back, it'll be a hanging job. During World War I, Topless served as a private in the Royal Army Medical Corps as a stretcher bearer, his first active duty being at Lewes. His unit was shipped overseas to take part in the landings at Gallipoli, and when they returned, Topless was hospitalised for dysentery. Afterwards, he briefly worked in a munitions factory. His unit was later posted to Salonika and Egypt, but Topless was sent back when he contracted malaria. After parting company with Private Harry Fallows in Swansea, 23-year-old Topless spent the next couple of weeks in London, posing as a decorated officer of the landed gentry. The police, though, began to close in and he fled to Monmouth in Wales. According to the Dundee Courier of the 7th of May, a cap with Topless's name in it was found in Pontypool, just 11 miles from Ebervale. A diary at the inquest into his death suggests that Topless arrived in Tonintal, Scotland, on the 6th of May, 
According to the People's Journal of the 12th of June, Topless apparently found work as a woodcutter on a forestry and shooting estate in Dunmaglass. The same report claims that on the 11th of May, Topless arrived at the Temperance Hotel in central Inverness, signing his name in the hotel register as G. Waters. According to the owner of the hotel, the stranger mixed freely with other guests. He entertained them all on the piano, playing various popular tunes of his time, as well as the Russian anthem. He explained he'd been in Russia, but was now looking for a job. Within days of his arrival at the hotel, though, the proprietor became suspicious and confronted him, putting it to him quite bluntly. It strikes me that there's a mystery about you, young man. Topless is then believed to have left the hotel on the 13th of May. On the 1st of June, in Tomintol, which is in the historic county of Banthshire in Scotland, farmer John Grant saw smoke rising from the chimney of the gamekeeper's abandoned hut. He alerted police constable George Grieg and Mr Mackenzie, the gamekeeper, and together they found Topless in the hut. John Grant related the story to the press, saying that he was originally looking for whoever was cutting down young trees and stealing fence posts. We found the door locked. The gamekeeper had a key and we made our way in. Inside, on the floor of one of the rooms, a man was lying partially undressed, a pair of putties and his jacket beside him. Grieg went over and roused him, saying, Put on your clothes and come along with me. The man donned his coat and putties and, on being asked his name while dressing, muttered something which sounded to us like Williamson. Mackenzie spoke about the articles of furniture and woodwork which had been burned and told me to go into the next room to see if any of the chairs there were missing. I did so and had just returned when I saw the man walk to the end of an iron bed and heard him say, there's something in here. Hardly were the words spoken when a shot rang out and Constable Grieg, who was standing nearest him, reeled back with a cry of, oh no, I'm done for. Mackenzie, who was nearest the door, was luckier and I just saw him dodge into the passage when I felt a stinging blow above my hip. I knew that I had got one too. Just as Grieg and I got into the adjoining room, another bullet passed behind us. Only three shots were fired that I heard, but I can tell you they were quite enough. A putty, by the way, is a long strip of cloth that's wrapped around the lower leg for protection and support. Soldiers in World War I wore them, and so did Luke Skywalker when we first see him on his home planet of Tatooine. <laughs> Word on the street. This week we travelled to Scotland for our street name, and Edinburgh in particular, to World's End Close, which is the final close before the high street becomes Canongate. It was named at a time when Edinburgh's poorest residents couldn't even afford to leave the city walls. And so, to them, this street was, in fact, the end of their world. After the shooting incident in the gamekeeper's hut, Topless fled on a bicycle. He cycled to Aberdeen and took a train to Carlisle, where he arrived on the 5th June. He was seen in an army base in Carlisle Castle. Grant and Green were shown a black and white photograph of Topless. Grieg said, Goodness gracious, where did this come from? 
If that man has auburn hair, he is the man who shot me. I won't forget those staring eyes. I'll know him again easily if I am ever confronted with him. Poplars escaped and was eventually seen again five days later in the village of Plumpton, Westmoreland. On 6th of June in Cumberland, Police Constable Alfred Fulton met and questioned a man in partial military dress, but let him go. Back at the station, he checked police circulars and noticed that this man matched the description of a man suspected of the Andover murder. He went back to apprehend Topless, but had to retreat when Topless threatened him with a Webley Mark VI revolver, saying, Hold up your hands! PC Fulton withdrew to raise the alarm, which started off a rather elaborate police operation involving armed officers, Inspector William Ritchie and Sergeant Robert Bertram, who both joined Fulton. It is believed that this may have been the result of orders from the Home Office to the Chief Constable Charles de Courcy Parry. And so they set off by car to apprehend Topless and were joined en route by the Chief Constable's civilian son, Norman de Courcy Parry, on his 1,000cc motorcycle. Parry himself was armed with a Belgian automatic pistol, which he had brought back on his return from service during the war. They saw Topless at about 8.30pm, but didn't recognise him until they had passed and were some yards down the road. After quickly turning the car around, the group again approached Topless. Norman de Courcy Parry stopped with the car, feigning mechanical trouble. He pretended to check to see what the trouble was as Topless approached. The police officers then came out and challenged him. He attempted to flee and fired at them. A Wild West-style shootout ensued, and the officers ran towards him shooting. Topless was hit in the chest. He collapsed and died. At the inquest in Penrith Town Hall on Tuesday the 8th of June, the coroner, Colonel Frederick Holton, declared that Topless had been lawfully shot by the police in the execution of their duties, saying, Where an arrest is resisted with such force that it was necessary in self-defence to kill, it becomes justifiable homicide. And so within three minutes, the jury returned a verdict saying that Topless was justifiably killed by a revolver bullet fired by a police officer in the execution of his duty. Fulton, Ritchie and Bertram were each awarded the King's Police Medal for their bravery. On Wednesday the 9th of June, in the presence of only police, officials of the Guardians and the Reverend R. H. Law, Topless was given a Christian burial service and was hastily buried without the knowledge of his family or the media in an unmarked grave due to the crimes he was accused of committing. Reverend Law insisted Topless be given a full Christian burial, stating, This man was violently removed from his life before he could be judged on earth. Even though at the time his family and friends didn't know where he was buried and the location of the grave was unknown, with corroboration of media images from the time of burial and information provided from Penrith Cemetery, you can find Topless's resting place located to the right of the cemetery chapel. In 1980, 
there was an unsuccessful attempt by the Canadian Frank Dason, a childhood friend of Toppler's, to erect a headstone on the grave. A more recent attempt has also been made by the descendants of Toppler's to erect a headstone. However, Eden District Council are unable to sell the exclusive rights of burial due to an anticipated need to reuse the burial land where Toppler's is interred. Toplis's belongings, including his monocle, were handed to Penrith and Eden Museum, where they are on display. In 2015, a plaque was unveiled on Roman Way Farm, near Plumpton, to mark the spot where Toplis was shot dead. A distant relative of the fugitive compiled a dossier, Chasing Percy, on the life and times of Percy Toplis. A few copies are still available on the internet. But an intriguing story that came out in a book from 1978 claimed that Toplis played a large part in the Atabal's mutiny from the 9th to the 12th of September 1917 as the monocled mutineer. The author suggests that he was pursued by the political establishment in a vendetta and may have been innocent of the murder. The book was dramatised by the BBC in 1986 as the monocled mutineer, creating considerable controversy. It cast Toplis as a hero of the riot that broke out amongst the British troops in September 1917 during World War I. But if you actually do some research, you'll find that Toplis was actually aboard the Orantis, bound for India from Devonport. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. Boffins in Bristol. On discovering that a shark can swim faster than us, but we can run faster than a shark, think that in a triathlon, it would all come down to who is the better cyclist. Back in the day facts. And for today's Back in the Day facts, let's start with the 21st of October 1805 and the Battle of Trafalgar, when British Admiral Horatio Nelson defeats the combined French and Spanish fleet. Nelson, though, is shot and killed during the battle. He was 47 years old. The 22nd of October 1877 saw the Blantyre mining disaster in Scotland, which kills 207 miners. Those widows and orphans who were unable to support themselves were evicted by the mine owners and likely sent to the poorhouse. On the 23rd of October 1998, Britney Spears releases her debut single, Baby One More Time. Her early career was marked by a string of successful albums and singles, making her one of the best-selling music artists of all time. On the 24th of October, 1976, 
English McLaren driver James Hunt finishes fourth in the season-ending Japanese Grand Prix at Fuji Speedway to win his first Formula One World Drivers' Championship by one point from Nicky Lauda. On the 25th of October, 1854, the infamous Charge of the Light Brigade during the Battle of Balaclava in the Crimean War results in over 100 killed. On the 26th of October, 2017, the oldest known tsunami victim is revealed by sediment discovered in a 6,000-year-old skull by scientists near Atap, Papua New Guinea. Archaeologist Alinaza Majima said war and disease didn't seem to account for the village's sudden demise and went on to say no cut marks or signs of illness were on any of the bones. By the looks of it, the village's men, women and children had drowned and were buried in the shattered remains of their homes. And lastly, on the 27th of October 1955, Rebel Without a Cause, the American coming-of-age romantic drama film directed by Nicholas Ray and starring James Dean and Natalie Wood, is released by Warner Brothers nearly a month after Dean's death in a car accident on September 30th, 1955. This was the only film of Dean's in which he received top billing. Well, I'm afraid that's the end of today's show. But don't worry, because I'll be here same time, same place next week. But before I go anywhere, I really do have to thank today's stars, the people who brought the story to life. And they include Joe Wilson, Molly Jeffries and David Hale from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Bradley Stoke Radio's very own Steve Shepherd. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>